helps to hear that story a little bit with music to smooth some of the very abrasive edges. Amen, amen. There are a lot of things competing for our attention in that story of the rich person and Lazarus. <clears throat> There's the purple robe and the linen garment, the daily feast, the crumbs that fall off the edge of the banquet table. And then out on the street, there are the sores, the dogs, the suffering. There's Hades or Tartarus or Sheol, whatever you want to call it, the H-E double hockey sticks place, whose name some people still consider to be a swear word. And then there's the after-death turnaround for the rich person suffering in the flames, begging just one drop of water on his tongue. And there's the huge, unbridgeable gulf between that place and the other one at the high end, where Father Abraham is rocking the soul of Lazarus in his bosom. I need to start this one out by letting you know that I don't have much to say about the place with the flames where the rich one ends up. A lot of human imagination has been spent on where we end up after we die, it's certainly in our nature to wonder about it, and the hope that things that seemed wrong during our lives will get made right after our lives are over is deeply, understandably embedded in our faith. But I have to confess that I don't think Jesus gave us this interesting little story to supply detailed information about the differences between two places we might envision ourselves on the far side of life, any more than I think Aesop gave us the story of the tortoise and the hare as an exercise in comparative zoology. I think we'll get the most mileage out of this parable if we think of it almost as a fable of sorts, a tale told to set up a landing in the consciences of its hearers. What draws my attention in the story, actually, is the gate. Some years ago, when I had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem for a few weeks, my teacher and guide, a man named Henry Carse, used to say pretty much every day as we made our way around the ancient walls of the city that a wall is an excuse for a gate. A gate is a place of passage a place where a boundary becomes permeable, a place where things connect. There's a gate right in the middle of this story, and what does or doesn't happen there makes all the difference. On one side of the gate is a street where if you look, you'll find an impoverished person whose name is Lazarus. Now it's interesting, but maybe a little bit of a red herring that that name shows up, as you may already have remembered, in one of the most famous Bible stories in which Jesus calls someone who was dead back into life. Just as interesting, I think, is the fact that this is the only character in any of Jesus's parables who's given a name. Don't forget that he has a name. On the other side of the gate, lives a rich person with the aforementioned fancy clothes and excellent cuisine. 
The story doesn't give that person a name. The story cares more that we know the name Lazarus. But we like to be able to give people names, so tradition has given the rich person the name Dives, calls it the story of Lazarus and Dives. Maybe you've heard that title. I learned in my studies this week that this name is really nothing more than a rendering of the Latin word for wealthy person. It's a generic. We might call them Richie. So we've got a gate between people in two very different circumstances, one of whom the story wants us to remember has a name. But the gate is closed. The people on either side are kept apart from each other. Not quite completely apart, though, because it turns out that the rich person does know Lazarus, at least by name, because in the torment of the flames, the rich one calls out, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue. Interesting, because in life there was never much indication at all that the rich one ever even really saw Lazarus even though the rich one must have come and gone that way countless times. In life, the rich one seems not to have been much able to see things beyond the edge of that capacious dining table, and the gates stayed closed, the boundaries stayed impermeable. But in death, the rich one sees Lazarus, all right, way over on the other side of a great gulf, sees Lazarus, whose soul is being rocked in the bosom of Abraham, the biblical patron saint of hospitality. And the rich one somehow assumes that this reinforces the prerogatives of wealth to give orders. So tell Lazarus to dip his finger in cool water for me. Or, when that doesn't work, decides that privilege still gives some leverage for negotiating. Well, okay then, have Lazarus take a message for me to my family's house. But by the time death comes, there's no gate anymore, just a huge impassable gulf between those two end-up places in the fable. Evidently, it's not too wide for some kind of conversation between them. Although, even then, it never seems to dawn on the rich one to address Lazarus directly, personally. But nobody knows how to actually get across the gulf from one place to the other, not even Father Abraham. And the fact that the gulf can't be crossed, even for a humanitarian errand involving a cooling drop of water, gets the rich one even more worried about the kinfolk back home maybe because the obsession with finery and feasting runs in the family? Send Lazarus to warn them, the rich one pleads, and then comes up with the remarkable idea that it might pull the siblings' attention back to things that make a difference if somebody like, I don't know, Lazarus, came back from the dead to warn them, if only they knew. If only I had known, if we had understood then, if I had opened my eyes while I could, if I'd only seen, if I'd only known. Oh, dives, 
I hear someone sighing in the background of this story. Maybe it's Father Abraham or Mother Sarah or even more likely Mother Hagar. Oh, Dives, if only you had known, if only you had seen, all you had to do was open the gate. Oh, the things we had every reason to know but chose not to know. Our own history, the cost of our choices, the way our system makes some people poor, things we close the gate to. Well, if this is a fable to land something important in our consciences, then maybe I can impute some special meanings or properties to some of the features of the landscape of the story. For instance, what if the gate is there not only to define where wealth and poverty touch each other, where need and generosity might have their nearest brush. What if the gate is also there to mark the threshold of the knowing that can transform things? And what if the way knowing does that is by changing nouns into verbs as they pass through? Inside, among the comforts, the nouns of the mansion, the rich person has used the gate to keep out the knowledge that could have made the difference. On that side of the gate, the wealthy one is surrounded by comforts, nouns, and chooses to see them as signs of blessing, more nouns, signs of favor, signs of having done something right. If the wealthy one had only opened the gate, it might have made it possible to pass through into the place where people have names and stories. The opened gate might have let in the stories that Lazarus could have told about who he was, who his people were, how it came to be that he was there, what happened to him, what it's like out there. Is there ever a greater, simpler act of comfort than to ask someone about their story? Comfort passing through the opened gate out into where it can breathe the air of stories. Even comfort might have become a verb. Among the comforts of the mansion, the conclusion of blessing must have been an easy one to jump to. A lot of us do it all the time. All these comforts must add up to something, must mean something, must stand for something. If only the rich one had let any of what seemed like blessings out through the gate to, to breathe the air of stories, they might have gotten verbed might have turned into something that people do for each other instead of being things they keep to themselves, things they count on just in their own ledger. If comfort is a thing, it might start out as a thing people on both sides of the proverbial gate have or wish they had or have more of. 
But once comfort passes through the gate, it becomes something people do for each other because having breathed the air of each other's stories, they recognize each other as people, as family. They know each other by name. If blessing is just a thing, it might start out as a thing people think God gives to those who've earned it, who deserve it. But once blessing passes through the gate and breathes the air of the stories waiting there, it becomes something that people do for each other because, after all, they're all children of God who did it for them in the first place. God who blessed them from the very beginning, not because they were rich or poor or handsome or ugly or looked good in purple, or ate only crumbs, or were talented, or average, or lucky, or unlucky, but blessed them from the very beginning only just because they were. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth in his ministry was the word blessed. It wasn't a thing he gave them. It's what he reminded them had been done to them and commissioned them to do to for each other. It was what he drew them together into, their joyful work, their toilsome joy. Blessed, he said, Blessed are you, the poor, the poor in spirit, the meek, the sorrowing, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Blessed are you. That's the secret name, the true name of everyone in the story. And everyone in this story and everyone in the story that's going on right now, out there, outside our gate. They all have a name that's also a verb. It tells you who they are by what they do, what they're invited to do, empowered to do. And it's when that truth finally lands in the deepest part of them, in the deepest part of us, that what we do makes us most human when we comfort, when we bless. It's then that you can tell that the gate is finally open. Amen.